conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Before we dive into this episode of Welcome to Geekdom, I wanted to share a couple ways you can support the podcast. The best way is to tell your friends about it. Post about the show on social media, just text them about it. If you enjoy these episodes, it really does help. And if you are really dedicated to the podcast, you can support on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman. And today I am joined by Katie Schaefer. We are discussing Suicide Squad, the movie. Not the new one just yet, but we will talk a little bit about that later, too. Katie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm uh Looking forward to talking about this. Whenever we watch a bad movie, we always have such a fun time. Yeah, and I think it's because whenever we talk about bad movies, it's things we genuinely like and we want them to be good. They just weren't. Yeah, and this one I think misses the mark so spectacularly that there's some stuff to really appreciate in it for it's it's like The Room in that it's just truly terrible and they didn't want it to be truly terrible they thought they were making something good and that is the mark that separates it from being unwatchable trash yeah this was one that I was kind of iffy about revisiting it just because I knew I didn't like it but I wouldn't say it was a complete waste of time to rewatch it I can tell you though there are certain aspects of the film that I just could have done without completely. And obviously, this came out in 2016 when DC was very much still in the Snyderverse era, if you will, which has extended itself until this year with the director's cut of Justice League that is coming shortly or already out, depending on when you're listening to this. But I think Suicide Squad was kind of billed as this fun, bright kind of movie. Like, if you look at the poster art for this, it's got, you know, bright greens and pinks, and you think it's going to be something different than it is as soon as you see the trailer and then the movie in full. Right. It feels like there's lots of neon. There should be a lot of neon and glowing things in this, like a like a Schumacher-era Batman, almost, but more you know, now, design-wise. And I think there's some of that, but then it's like somebody came in after they finished editing the movie and was like, okay, let's turn down the brightness by at least 30% to the point where some scenes, you just don't know what the hell is going on because you literally can't see. Yeah, and they obviously went and fixed this at least quite a bit when they did Birds of Prey, because the Harley in Suicide Squad and the Harley in Birds of Prey, yes, the same character played by Margot Robbie. And I think they just set a whole different tone in Birds of Prey that they probably should have set in Suicide Squad first. I agree. I think one of the failings of the movie is that it, it tries to be a group movie, but it doesn't know how to do that. And it would have been better like in Birds of Prey where you pick one main character and then go with it. as And they're the one that's guiding you through the story. And this movie, since it doesn't have that, it feels very disjointed. Yeah. And to dive into the cast, I think this is one of the standout areas of the movie. 
because you, you have, like I said, Margot Robbie, you have Will Smith, you have Cara Delevingne, who maybe doesn't get to do quite as much as we would like her to, Jai Courtney, you know, you just have so many big names in this movie. You have Viola Davis as Amanda Waller, and it's kind of crazy how many people they got for this movie. And I didn't even finish listing them off. You know, you have Joel Kinnaman, Jay Hernandez. Jared Leto. Not my favorite, but nope. yes, you also have Scott Eastwood making a brief appearance in this, obviously, of, you know, Clint Eastwood fame. <laughs> and David Harbour is in this. Like, and this was yeah. made... In 2016, so I think this would have been shortly before Stranger Things came out and certainly before Hellboy. So David Harbour really hadn't caught on quite the way he – he's not – he was not well-known like he is now. And so when I was watching it, I'd totally forgotten he was in it. I was like, oh, my gosh. Even this little small bit part, somehow they cast a really good actor. Yeah. And yet, still doesn't work. Do you know about all of the people they went after and did not get for the movie, though? No. there's There were more. Yeah, so Tom Hardy and Ryan Gosling were both offered roles. And then for Amanda Waller, they weren't sure who they were going to go with. So they considered Viola, Octavia Spencer, and Oprah for the role. <laughs> I think they went with the best one, honestly. Yeah, like, yeah. And I like, I love Octavia Spencer as an actress, but I think Viola Davis has... She has the stern look that I don't think Octavia and Oprah could quite get down as well yeah and anyone who's seen widows will know that if you haven't actually seen this movie because she does a very similar performance in widows except it's a thousand times better because it's an actually well-written character (laughs) but she does the best with that she can with this like if you can genuinely both understand amanda waller and hate her because of how well viola plays it yeah they also offered jake gyllenhaal the role of flag when Tom Hardy was replaced and he declined it, they looked at John Bernthal for a role, Joel Edgerton, and it was just all over the place with all of these people they were trying to get for the movie. That's nuts. That's just nuts. David Ayer was like, let's go for broke. <laughs> Plus, you have the very, very quick Ben Affleck cameo. Yep, that's right. That's right. He's in this for a brief moment. It's very fleeting. (laughs) Yeah. And it feels so out of place of everything else. It's like, oh, we're in a different movie for a brief period of time. And now we're back. Well, to dive into the story, you could say the same about bits and pieces of that, because obviously Jared Leto plays the Joker and the Joker has sort of this almost carnival painted car that kind of changes color depending on how the light hits it. And it is so different than the rest of the tone of the movie that it felt like they should have picked that sort of color scheme and just gone with that the entire time because so much of this movie takes place at night too which doesn't help at all and obviously you come across the same thing with a lot of the Batman movies so much of the action is taking place at night that I feel like it tends to either get overlit or isn't well lit enough (laughs) right it gets really muddy and you're kind of everything kind of blurs together. Like there's a couple scenes in this where they're climbing up stairwells and you're like, who's who's coming? Is this is this our team? Is this some random like what's happening here? Because you just can't make it out. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think there's definitely a lot of different tones in this. Mm-hmm. Like you have this stuff with Deadshot where, you know, you're seeing his daughter and his relationship with her and 
all of that that's going on that very much feels like it's set in a real dramatic world. And then the stuff with the Joker, which feels totally carnivalesque and out there. And then you have what's the government side of things with Amanda Waller and Cardi Levine's character and all of that. So it's just all these different tones smashed together. Yeah. And when they were putting the team together, we get a really good look at almost all of them. And then they bring in this one guy and he's just gone and like not part of the team, you know, when they're on like the military base and they have them all lined up, they bring this one guy out of one of the SUVs. And then I don't remember him being in the rest of the movie after that. Isn't that, um, God, what's he can climb anything? Slipknot, isn't that the Slipknot character yes. who dies? Like as soon as they get out of the car to go do the mission, he like runs away and they're like, and blow him up. It was like, okay, that was a little weird. You didn't. The audience believed that you had implanted nano devices in their neck. We didn't need you to show this to us and just waste somebody. Yeah, and it's like you could have probably done a little more with that character, especially since they were new to this whole idea. The fact that he takes off on a military base, you know, granted, it's not like he was going to get far. It just felt like a weird choice. <laughs> yeah, it's it feels superfluous and a waste of the film's time. And there's a I got to say there's a lot of this movie that feels like a waste of time. Like they just yeah, they introduce the characters multiple times and tell us the same things over and over again. It feels like there's two climactic battles that happen and it, it by the end of it you just feel like what did I just watch? What just what all just happened here? I specifically remember pausing it at somewhere between, you know, the 50 to 55 minute mark. And I was like, oh, the movie's just now getting started. Yep. Yep. We're just now going there. It took them that long to introduce the characters. And I think that's a problem because it kind of treats the audience like they're idiots and they need an introduction to every single character, which... The new movie, which we'll talk about a little more later, kind of did that in a trailer. Yeah, I think you can, especially now in comic book movies, we don't need nobody. And not everyone needs a freaking origin story. And in this, they introduced them for so long. And like at 60 minutes, like in standard movie parlance of how they time things, like at 60 minutes, you should be having your first big moment it whether it's action scene if it's an action movie or a dramatic tension break if you're watching a drama whatever like you should have the first big moment happen at roughly 60 minutes in and if your story is just getting started at that point people are going to you're breaking their expectations so people are going to just be like okay it will feel overly long mm -hmm. which this movie is definitely because it's what two hours and 15 minutes i think so and it's just baffling why they take why they do that it's just feels feels crammed with too much which i think we've talked about before that dc movies tend to just cram as much as possible <laughs> into their stuff yeah i think that whole first part of the movie probably could have been done in 20 25 minutes tops so about half the time right it would have felt Short and sweet. And one of the things that I would have preferred is to find out more about these characters as we're going along instead of having those info dumps in the beginning about, like, here's who this person is. Like, well, if you're doing a group movie, like an ensemble cast, which is what this is, 
it's much better to allow each character to show who they are through their interactions with the other people on their team. And then we can find out little bits of backstory that explain those actions throughout the film. And instead, they heavy word vomit all over you in the first 45, 50 minutes about who these people are. And then they throw them together. But then those people don't necessarily act like they you would expect from the setup they gave you. <laughs> There was another part of the story that confused me, and it was the whole relationship between Enchantress and Rick Flagg, because he obviously knew who she was. They were kind of trying to keep her as June Moon as long as possible and then only have Enchantress come out when she was needed. But it seemed like the two of them were dating and Rick didn't understand why that would be a problem. Yes, that did feel very, I was like, why is he allowed to do this? I mean, I assume that June Moon wasn't a, a, a villain or like a criminal before she becomes Enchantress. Seems like from what I could tell, she is, that happens to her like in their early in their dating or whatever, while she's a member of the government team. And that's why she isn't in jail my that was my best interpretation but I'm not sure that's accurate yeah, it's either that or he was assigned to keep an eye on her and yeah. then the relationship started but either way inappropriate it seemed like a bad idea <laughs> right right and it was like well this seems inevitable and he seems so baffled by it too yeah it's just well what's wrong with it everything's fine and it felt like does she know that this is his role that he's been tasked with this or is this a secretive thing because if it's a secret then it's tremendously problematic to have that relationship with her because you are leading her on and she's obviously already under a lot of stress with this you know being invaded by an incredibly powerful witch soul <laughs> it just it really doesn't do um, Enchantress or June Moon any favors and makes and gives her no real character development. Yeah. And he just thinks he'll be able to like talk her down too. And I'm like, dude, no. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you think you are? <laughs> like it, it's and throughout the film, I would say that that's kind of his character is he feels overly confident in his abilities and he just keeps failing over and over and over again but that's that doesn't make him compelling that just makes him look like an idiot and i'm not i'm not familiar with that character in a comic book sense is are you rick flag is usually from what i've read in the comics the leader of the suicide squad he's sort of like the government guy who is in charge of the team. Okay, so this is the role of this character before that. Yeah, I think that personal connection just made this story a little more convoluted, too, because yeah. there was this tie that probably shouldn't have been there. And I don't know, there was just something that felt so off about it, because the entire time, you know, when they were in the bedroom together and then she changes and then kind of disappears and comes back it's like what makes you think this is going to end well <laughs> I, I just didn't get it yeah what makes him think that he he has any kind of control over this situation or of her that's because it's very clear in every scene that he doesn't in any way that part of it feels 
uh, puzzling and like not exactly a plot hole, but just like not well thought out. Yeah, that was one thing that I thought the story didn't quite get right. And, you know, I think some of the action scenes were done well enough. I would have liked for them to be a little better lit so you could actually see what was happening. But I do think the stuff with Deadshot and his daughter, I thought that worked really well. Because then you know you shouldn't feel bad for this character, but it gives some humanity to him that they don't necessarily give to any of the other characters. Yeah. And Will Smith is fantastic at it. He really does sell this role. And in both the sympathy part and the, wow, you're a terrible person part. Because it doesn't shy away from showing him, you know, murdering people. And his character in no way is like, I am a good guy. He's like, nah, I kill people for a living. I'm bad. He knows exactly who he is and what he does. And he just, at that point, wants to be able to take care of his daughter. And even though he's hesitant at first, he's kind of like, okay, this is my only option. Right, right. And I think I, I especially liked his relationship with Harley. And I think mm -hmm. her and Will Smith have a lot of uh, like good friend chemistry in this. And that interaction works really well with both of their characters because Harley, that's pretty standard for Harley's. She is easily swayed through with sympathy or difficult situations, especially when it's involving a kid. Right. As we see in Birds of Prey. And obviously they are keeping Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. And we have this movie to thank for that because yes. I think her performance and Will Smith as Deadshot were sort of the two standout performances for me personally. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I love, I have to say, I do love Jai Courtney. He is, he just, I don't know what it is about him, but as an actor, he just tickles me pink. And like this, this role in particular is a great example of why, is he can inject a lot of ridiculous comedy into a situation with his face, facial performance and his ring of jokes how he tells a joke and how he delivers a bit but he's barely in this barely and he so i think he's a good contribution but i think the performances that will smith and margot robbie give are just like they're what saved the movie for me and made it watchable if it had been other folks i don't know that it would have been watchable yeah there were a few performances where you were like okay this is how the entire movie and all of the performances should have been, and it would have been so much better. At least one can only imagine it would yeah. be better. And look, I know there are a lot of people out there who like this movie, and it made a ton of money. So good on DC for getting people to go out and go watch this movie in droves and make money off of it, because I think... DC is slowly but surely trying to learn from their mistakes. You know, there's still yeah. some stuff, as we talked about in our Wonder Woman 84 episode, that they haven't quite been able to figure out just yet. Because, like you said, too, even in Marvel, some of the action scenes get a little darker because of the large amounts of CGI happening in them. But there's something about the Marvel movies that I think just kind of has a different levity to them that makes them a little more 
enjoyable, whereas DC took a much more serious approach to their movies and like all the characters had to be serious. And with this one, they kind of lighten up on that a little, especially with Harley. Yeah. And I think this was this, so this came out in 2016. So I think this would have been the first one where they really stepped away from strictly Snyderverse. You know, David Ayer directed this and I have feelings about a David Ayer that I won't go into here because he's a very interesting person, we shall say. And he wrote it for the most part, uh, wrote this script anyway, not the story. The story comes from a comic. But they tried to do something different with this. And that I can applaud. And I'm glad that it exists because I think it since and since it made buckets and buckets of money, I think DC was like, OK, so we can do something a little different. And then we get, you know, Wonder Woman and then Aquaman. And now they've really they're branching out and that can only be for the best. And this movie works. I mean, the darkness that it uses is not well done. But I don't have any problems with a Suicide Squad movie being dark, like, yeah. Because that's it's a dark story. It's a bunch of murders and villains. Like it should be dark, but they took it a little too far. It was visually not bright enough. When you can still have a lot of visual brightness in a movie and still have it have the dark tone, and I don't think they'd quite figured that out yet. Yeah, I mean, if you look at something like the recent It movies. That first one, I don't remember it being all that dark. Obviously, the second one, they go into the sewers and everything. So naturally, it's going to be darker in those scenes. And I think with how much of this was taking place outside in what I only imagine was Gotham slash New York City, you know those places are still fairly bright at night. <laughs> oh, yeah. They light up the sky. I mean, I live in a small city. And I still can barely see. And I live, you know, about 10 miles from the center of downtown where things are super bright. And I still can barely see the stars. Like, it shouldn't... I can take a decent picture when I'm in downtown without a, without a camera flash. It's bright enough. So it doesn't need to look like that. And this is a comic book film. So you should be pushing the boundaries of... And making more uh, pop, I think, as especially with like the, how they tried to present it with all of the bright neon colors. Yeah. Feels like they just didn't quite fulfill what they were promising. There was just an inconsistency between the marketing of the film and the story we actually got within the film. And what did you think of the Harley Joker storyline in particular? Because I have probably made it clear on this podcast a time or two that I am not a fan of Jared Leto's Joker. Hmm. Don't like it. Not a fan. I mean, I, I'm okay with it because of how they turn it around in Birds of Prey. They really manage that bit of it well and kind of twist the story so that it works in Birds of Prey. But in this film, it just feels so tacky. And like Jared Leto, as I'm, I think we've talked about before, was a horrific abusive cast mate in this and did awful things to his co-stars in the name of method acting, which is just not cool to say the least. But he's also just so over the top and uh, just gross in this. And not that Joker can't be those things, but I don't think that that's a good position to show him from. I don't think it works as well as a, as other forms of the Joker. Yeah, I totally agree. And I will say that if you want some good Harley 
Joker content, the animated shows are kind of where a lot of that works better for me. Obviously, you have Batman, the animated series, where both characters appear, but then the new Harley Quinn series, which, if I'm not mistaken, is now on HBO Max since DC Universe switched over to comics only. And that show has been so much fun, but don't expect to see a ton of Joker in it if you're kind of expecting that to be the main theme. He does appear, but it's not like he's in every single episode necessarily. Yeah, and I mean, Harley Quinn came from the animated series that came from yeah. the 90s. That was where she got, that was her first appearance. And so, and their history is one that is obviously very abusive. Like their dynamic just is that way. But they really take it to an uncomfortable level in this that feels like too real. And especially if you know that what Jared Leto was like on set, like it feels very much too real. Like, ugh, am I really watching someone be mistreated on this screen or is this acting? Because I'm OK with acting. I'm not OK with if it's an actual mistreatment being filmed. And he really blurs the line with that performance. Yeah, I had heard about all of the things that he attributed to method acting. And I was like, mm, I don't think that's how that works. Yeah, no, it sounds like you're just an asshole, just a gross asshole. I mean, plenty of people can do method acting who who aren't jerks. I mean, some people do. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix was not the nicest person on the Joker set, for sure. But like Tom Hardy manages to do give amazing performances and not treat his coworkers terribly. So does Charlize Theron. And they've both done very, very dark, difficult movies and are not known as jerks. Yeah. So the main goal for the squad in this movie is to defeat Enchantress. And it felt like they didn't do enough buildup with her as the villain. It's like they really tried to build up everyone else and they gave us glimpses of what she could do. But otherwise, it was kind of like this switch just flipped and she went from being in the same room as Rick Flagg and Amanda Waller to becoming the movie's biggest villain. Yeah, and it doesn't really commit that hard to it. And it should, because it really tries to, you know, with the twist that they're rescuing Amanda Waller, in about how, which is what, like, two-thirds of the way through the movie. Yeah. And they kind of set it up that they want to have Amanda Waller be a villain as well as Enchantress, which really cuts the legs out from the Enchantress story and makes it feel very secondary, which I don't think it should. Like, we should feel anxiety for the team during that final fight scene, and you just don't because Enchantress hasn't really been set up as well as other DC villains have in other movies or in their comics. She just feels very, like... Paint by numbers of, oop, this is a bad guy. Let's all take her down. Yeah. And all of a sudden, she's just summoning her brother, Incubus. Yep. And he is just totally useless. I mean, it, they doesn't, um, El Diablo takes him down fairly easily. And it just feels, uh, yeah, that, that end scene is just so unsatisfying. I think that's what bothered me about it is that it feels so trite and paint by numbers. Plus, you have the fact that they spend so much time introducing the characters, but then there are certain characters like Killer Croc and Katana who you don't really get to know anything about them. You know, with El Diablo, we see 
what he did, why he's the way he is now. And there is a little bit of character development with him in the same way they did it with Deadshot. But really, it's like they couldn't find the right balance for the characters and their stories and whose stories they wanted to focus on, because they clearly only focused on some and then kind of pushed the others aside. Right. Like Captain Boomerang, like we don't know what his what his story is. He's just Australian bad guy. <laughs> and it's just it feels not well thought out. Like there's so much about this that doesn't feel well thought out because it very much presents itself as an ensemble movie. And doesn't follow through on what an ensemble movie means. Like, we need to know about each of these people and see them coming together and working as a team. And it feels very much more like, well, we'll give you the deets about three of them, and then the rest will just make it work. And we won't give you any backstory about any of them. And they'll just do whatever is necessary to move the plot along, which is not satisfying at all. And I think it's hard when you want to have an ensemble cast like this and you haven't done anything previously to build up to these characters. So, you know, Marvel had some movies before they worked their way up to the Avengers. And I think that worked because even if we hadn't met everyone by the time the Avengers rolled around, we at least had backstory on, you know, Iron Man, Captain America, and whoever else showed up. I'm forgetting the order off the top of my head, but they did the work beforehand to give you this big ensemble movie, and this just jumps right in. I feel like if they had introduced one or two of these villains in previous movies, you know, that would have been a little better, but given the previous movies, at the same time, you're kind of like, well, those would have had to have different stories as well then (laughs) exactly it's like oh this could have been good but the choices that have been made previous to this don't really allow for it to work because yeah like the the avengers comparison is is very good for this because some of them have you know like cap hulk they have thor they have whole movies dedicated to them and some of them like Black Widow and Hawkeye just kind of play big roles within the other characters' movies. But they all feel like fully developed people when they come to the movies so that we don't need to waste any time setting anything up. We can just jump right into the story and watching these characters interact. But since DC didn't plan on that, it's kind of feels rushed and a jumble and... I think they just didn't really know what they were doing or what they had to work with. And I think we've had that complaint about them. We've talked about that before. And I agree. If you like this movie, awesome. I enjoy watching it. I've seen it like three or four times. And I periodically am just like, I'm in a Suicide Squad mood. I just want to watch some crazy nonsense. And every time I wish it were better because I want to see all of these characters played by all of these actors doing something good and fun together. But the script just does not does not work. I think for us, this is the equivalent of when we talked about Maximum Overdrive for Chat Cemetery. Yes, yes, definitely. It's not a good movie in our opinions, obviously, but yep. it's something that there's still plenty to talk about. And I really do think they hit on a few things that worked really well with this movie. But then 
everything else kind of just fell apart around it. And it tried to do too much. Like we were saying earlier, you know, we didn't need the Harley Joker love story in this movie. No, I think that was DC falling into the trap that Marvel Comics falls into when it comes to Wolverine and the X-Men. Mm. Where every There has to be Wolverine in every X-Men storyline. And it's <laughs> to the point where they make jokes about it in the actual comics. I feel like that's what DC is doing with Joker. It's like, oh, Joker's a great character. People really like him. Let's just throw him in everywhere we can. Just cram a Joker story in there. And it's like, nah, Joker isn't he's not that kind of character like you really need if you're gonna have joker in your film he should be a big part of it because he's a complex deep character that can provide a lot to a story and if you're just throwing him in there it's like oh no now you're you're overflowing the pot with of of characters and storylines and ideas even just having the introductions go by faster, which ironically, we're like, they didn't spend enough time with these characters beforehand for us to really be able to just dive right into this movie. But I think there was a way they could have done this to the point where it wouldn't have taken quite as long, you know, maybe start the movie off by just having the task force already put together. Yes, Because I think that's what took the longest part. It was going and retrieving every single one of them, even though they were supposedly like at the same prison. Right. But it feels like they're pulling them from all over the world. Nothing really feels connected when it comes to that early section of the movie. It feels very disjointed until they bring it all together and smash. Because they're in so many different types of conditions, too. You know, El Diablo's being held in a drain pipe. Yep. Yep. And then Uh, it's like Deadshot is in a regular cell and he has his punching bag or whatever. And or, you know, he gets one at the end and he's just back in his regular cell. Harley's in this giant room with just a cage in the middle. And you're just like Hannibal Lecter style. Yeah. What is this place? And why are there so many different ways to contain the criminals? Because... From what I remember from every kind of prison like this in the comics, it's just that they kind of retrofit the cells to that person's powers. They don't have like all these different types of rooms that they're in. Right. I mean, we've seen the inside. I know this is an Arkham Asylum. Don't don't get me wrong. I know that's not this, but it's a good comparison. Like we've seen Arkham Asylum in several, several different movies and comics and media at this point. And that's usually where Harley goes. Right. And that's that makes sense. That is how it is. Like they have this old, old prison that they just make work for each individual villain and their own powers. And it's not like Harley has super magical superpowers. She's just crazy. Yeah. And a psychopath. Like you don't need, you know, the heat protecting or, or whatever. It was just very strange how they went about introducing and how long they took introducing the characters. But yeah, they try to shorthand it. They try to do what we were talking about, where it's like you need to set these characters up for us in previous movies. But to try to do it all in just one movie and then have their story after that is like, this this is too much, guys. Too much. I think the previous appearances could have even just been cameos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there was plenty of room for that in it takes not even five minutes in a Batman movie to ha- to show him taking down Deadshot. I mean, they sh- and they show that in this movie. They yeah. didn't need to be in this movie. It could have been in, you know, Ben Affleck's, the, the one of the previous ones. Yeah, and it could have been 
Batman saw a news clip on the Bat computer and then went after Deadshot and there was, you know, the two minute cameo. Right. And I think that's the big difference, again, between DC and Marvel, where Marvel plans everything out in advance and includes all these little Easter eggs so that people who read comics or follow the movies really closely can kind of predict what's coming. And DC doesn't do any of that, <laughs> except in, um, God, what was it? Batman v Superman. They start prepping for Justice League, but they still do it very poorly in that. Yeah, with the way they've done the Wonder Woman stories, it's very clear that they want her to exist in the same universe, but not tell stories necessarily within the same time period. Yeah. So you have that whole dynamic going on too. And that's not to say that we think every single Marvel movie is perfect, because there are definitely no very bad <laughs> MCU movies. Listen to us do uh, our, our Thor 2, uh, Thor Dar the Dark World discussion. <laughs> I mean, The Incredible Hulk, too. It's like oh, God. Ed Norton didn't even return. <laughs> so nope. They had to recast the Hulk. He wanted to, and they were like, mm -mm, no, you don't get to come back. You weren't good enough. Well, I think he wanted a lot of creative control, too. That was something yeah. that I read. But that aside, it's like Marvel had its own problems. And they still managed to tell this big, full story that took concise planning throughout 22 movies and counting. Yep, and now shows being added into that. And I think it's just a difference of style and a difference of forethought. And I think I get the sense that, and I know for a fact, that Marvel, the comic book side of the company, is far more involved in their films than the DC side. Like with DC, it's very much Warner Brothers is directing the choices and making these decisions. And they don't have any familiarity with how one needs to develop long-form storytelling like comic book movies have, have become. Yeah. They don't know how to do that at all. And they don't know the strengths and weaknesses of comic book stories. So they just... Yeah, let's just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And it's obvious that the comic book side of the company is kind of influencing the movie side of the company and vice versa, because you saw how all of a sudden Iron Man started looking a little more and more like Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah, and their and their changes to Guardians of the Galaxy. Like when the movies came out, that was not the Guardian lineup. Right. I don't know if that lineup had ever been in the Guardians. Yeah, in the official comics, they'd all been one at one point, but now, but then they did a whole run of it that was a completely different, different story with these characters in uh, the the Marvel Comics universe. I don't remember which one they call it. Is it the six one six? Yeah, that the... that's Earth six one six is the main universe. Yes, yes. So, as opposed to the MCU. Yeah, and then they have you know, Spider-Gwen was on a different Earth, which is something we see with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse a little more, but not to dive too deep into Marvel here. Katie, do you have anything else on this Suicide Squad movie before we talk briefly about the upcoming one? I think we covered it. <laughs> we went into a lot of detail about the problems. Okay, so I will say one, let's each say one positive thing <laughs> before we move on. Um, if you can think of one. I think the acting is great. And I think... The good thing of, that came out of this movie is that we got Birds of Prey mm -hmm. and that since it did so well, it helped Warner Brothers and DC um, understand that they needed to do things differently and that it wasn't bad to try a new way. And I think that's what's now leading us to get a wider variety of storytelling and a better quality of storytelling out of the DC movies. 
Yeah, most of my problems were with the script. So for me, a lot of the cast worked really well. Not everyone worked well, but I am glad that they are keeping some of the characters and actors from this movie and bringing them into the new Suicide Squad movie, because I feel like it would be very disjointed if they suddenly had a new Amanda Waller, a new Rick Flagg, a new Harley Quinn. And obviously, with this and Birds of Prey, they know they have a Harley Quinn for quite some time in Margot Robbie, which I think, you know, she was definitely the highlight of this film. Absolutely. Yeah, I think anybody who's coming back is being played by the same actor. It's only, they've only cast new folks. And I think all I'm seeing in the, at least from what they have on the cast list now, is the only people who are coming back are Rick Flagg, Harley Quinn, and Amanda Waller. So Boomerang's coming back too, I believe. Yes, he is. And he's also played by Jai Courtney. So um, that makes me happy. But yeah, let's talk about the new one because there's so much possibility with the new one, I think. Like I mentioned earlier, what I think they did well was they introduced all of the characters with those little trailers and stuff. And it's not that they gave us the backstory on them. It's just like, hey, here are these characters. We're going to tell you who is playing who right off the bat. We're not going to really leave a ton of surprises. There are some people who do not have character names on IMDb, and those people are Taika Waititi. And Sylvester Stallone. You know, there's maybe a couple other people down the line that don't have names. And I don't think it's necessarily that they want to tell you who everyone is <laughs> right off the bat. I think it's okay. But I don't think that the characters that don't have names yet are the ones who are going to be part of the Suicide Squad. I think they're going to play other external roles from the task force. And that should be interesting. But they've got so many big names again. <laughs> I know. And that's and and we've got some of James Gunn's like stable of actors coming into this, like Michael Rooker and his brother Sean Gunn is playing um an animated character like he does in um he does the physical performances for Rocket Raccoon in yeah. Guardians, as well as being that guy whose name I never remember who's in the Ravagers. He's great in both roles, but yeah, I'm excited for it because Idris Elba. I mean, we get an Idris Elba in this. Yeah. Nathan Fillion, who's playing a character that just looks, for those of you who are Joss Whedon fans who've seen um, Dr. Horrible, I, it looks very much like he's just playing Captain Hammer. <laughs> and I am 100% on board for that. I think knowing that James Gunn is the one doing this, it gives me some hope that it's not going to mimic Guardians of the Galaxy exactly, but it's going to have that tone that I expect from a modern day Suicide Squad movie. Yes, I agree. I mean, and James Gunn got his start doing pretty dark comedic stuff that I think will serve him well here. Guardians is much more lighthearted than Suicide Squad in general. Mm -hmm. And I think that will represent it. And I think this one, because I believe this one is, al is also rated R as opposed to Guardians, which is PG-13. Yeah. So I think this one, he'll be able to kind of hit that and push the boundaries a little more than he does in Guardians. And when I heard he was he was doing this, I was like, perfection. He'll make this work because we've seen him do ensemble groups before and nobody feels left out in the Guardians movies. Everybody gets their moment. Everybody gets their part. And everybody gets fairly equal character development. 
Yeah, and this is now slated to come out August 6th of this year. So we'll see if oh that God. happens. <laughs> but yeah, I think once theaters start opening back up, probably summertime later this year, kind of, we're going to see it so many movies. Yes, and this will come out if even even then as long as well, we'll see how it pulls out how it how it all plays out with directors objections, but you know, if things stay the same, this will come to HBO Max the same time as it comes to theaters. Yeah. And with this episode, we want to do a new little segment here where if you either like this movie and want to know more about sort of Suicide Squad or some other great villain stories. We are going to recommend a couple of things here. And Katie, thank you for being the guinea pig for this little segment here that doesn't even have a name, but (laughs) happy to do it. Why don't you give us your recommendation for a similar kind of story that maybe people should check out? So I'm going to go with a comic book on this. And way back in 2013, which feels like it was a decades ago, uh, Nick Spencer and Marvel, of course, published The Superior Foes of Spider-Man. And this is kind of like Suicide Squad in that it is like a bunch of villains all ganged up together. It's the Sinister Six. But the only one that's really going to be known to general comics audiences and movies is maybe Shocker. Because I think he has a brief appearance in one of the movies. Mm -hmm. But it is fantastic. And it captures that same bad guy group interplay. It has comedy. It's not super long. I think it made it like 12 issues or something. I think it was 17. It was a weird number. Yep, 17. And it really plays with the Spider-Man, within the Spider-Man world, which allows for more wacky things because of how Spidey's jokes are. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of fun and it's easy to read. You can get it on, I'm sure there are graphic novels available or if you're on Marvel Unlimited, then it's an easy find. So that would be my recommendation to try if you either, if you liked or disliked this, if you just want to read about bad guys being in group, Superior Foes of Spider-Man by uh, Nick Spencer with artwork by Steve Leiber is worth a try. Yeah, I read that series and really had a fun time with it as well. But my recommendation is going to be reading Suicide Squad Trial by Fire, which is by John Ostrander. It is the modern day version of the Suicide Squad in the comics. They had appeared previously, but this is what these two movies are kind of based off of. I think the new Suicide Squad is going to be based off of his comics in particular a little more than this movie we just talked about. But I read this and it wasn't one of my favorite comics, but I think it really does a good job of setting up what the modern day Suicide Squad would look like. And this came out in the 80s. So, you know, we say modern day in comic book terms, which is pretty much, you know, 80s and 90s on. Yep. Yep. I mean, we know it's 40 years ago, honestly, 1980. But in the world of comics, not a whole lot has changed since then. That's what we consider, you know, the current era as opposed to the silver or the golden age. Yeah. And I think it'll give you a good understanding of some more of the characters that have appeared as members of the Suicide Squad. It's not the exact same members as this movie in particular, but there is some overlap. So I think there's a lot to 
learn and enjoy when reading through the John Ostrander comics in particular. Yes, I'm definitely going to check it out. I didn't know about it until you told me, so I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, Katie, one last thing. Ratings. I forgot to do those earlier when we wrapped talking about the actual movie. But, you know, like we said, we'll watch this. It's not great, but it isn't necessarily the worst thing I have seen. I did give it a one and a half, though. That might have been a little harsh. I would say I'm almost there, though. I'm like between a one and a half and a two. And I think I've said this on the show before. Like, I love bad movies. So I'm yeah far more sympathetic and will give it a higher rating because I think of it as a good bad movie as opposed to a bad bad. So I'm going to go with a two out of five because I have watched it multiple times. And I have had moments where I'm like, I really want to watch Suicide Squad right now. And if it was a full on just terrible one, I would never have that. <laughs> I don't ever get a craving to watch um, Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. <laughs> I did rewatch that simply to watch the extended cut or whatever they call it. They have different names for all of these different cuts. And right? I'm just like, I don't know. I watched the long one. <laughs> <laughs> the longest one there was so far. Yeah, exactly. But Katie, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Suicide Squad. Maybe we will have you back on for the Suicide Squad and a couple other people if we decide to do a roundtable on that. But it's always fun. Yes. And I'm looking forward to the new Suicide, the Suicide Squad. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. Two dollars a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For five dollars a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.